So, John, it's Michael Vandervoort, John Hyman. We're here to finally do another edition of Labor Relatedly. It's been like more than a minute. It's actually been more than a month. I looked and we did one at the end of May and then life and business and vacation took over. So welcome back. How are you doing it's, today? It's good to be back. It's good to see you. Um, yeah, and talk likewise. to you. Yeah, partly my fault because I skipped the country for a couple of weeks. So I, I know. And uh, living vicariously with the Hymans as, was my summer show. There as a picture showing up on Facebook in large dumps every day. You seem to to really enjoy your uh, couple, your long delayed, but finally a couple of weeks in Portugal with your family. T tell us about that. Yeah, we were supposed to go in March of 2020 for a spring break trip. And then uh, the world obviously shut down. So we had to, we went literally up to the last minute and then decided almost uh, it felt like the night before but it was probably a week before we were supposed to leave we decided to scrap the trip and then uh we waited three years to take it but we finally took the trip we extended from a week to 12 days our trip we stayed in three different places we went to started in porto which is kind of north central portugal um close to the ocean on the dora river and then down to peniche which is an amazing beachside uh, it's actually that the city is actually a peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic, but it's a, a beautiful beachside town and then finished up in Lisbon. And it was you worry when you delay a trip for three years the way we did. And then we built it up in our brains like this is going to be mm. the best vacation ever. You worry that it's not going to live up to expectations. And then it exceeded expectations. So it's uh, it's a beautiful country. Um, it's. Um, connected with me in a play in in a way that no place I've ever visited before connected with me um and uh just the people the food the culture the lifestyle um uh the 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 scenery uh the landscapes all of it it's just it's just an amazing country um and uh when I, I'm not even saying if anymore when uh, we invest in our property over there, which will hopefully be coming soon. Uh, I'll be sure to share the the link to the to our Airbnb with all the listeners. So awesome, yeah. So so then in a few years we'll see John, the labor lawyer uh, in Portugal, beachside in his flip flops and speedo going to. The yeah, I'm beach. trying to figure. I'm trying to figure on how to sell that to my partners. That might be a yeah. tough sell on the <laughs> on the, the the digital on the digital nomad attorney. Yeah. Um, but I mean, but the idea of you know investing in a place that we can uh, near the beach that we can turn into an Airbnb um, and then use it when we use it when we want to, and then have a place that we can ultimately use in longer stretches for retirement um, is super attractive to me and my wife. So we are in uh, serious discussions. I may have already spoken to a realtor over there. So it's definitely, cool. definitely in process. So probably beats a Disney timeshare and the un, unlimited, unlimited opportunities to pay HOAs at that. Is 10, right. 10 times out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, well cool. but yeah, but I mean, so the only downside is right. When you Airbnb, when, when you yeah. invest in an Airbnb in a foreign country, you do like, you don't have to pay the timeshare fees. Like you do it to Disney, to the Disney vacation club, but you do get a higher management company to manage the property. Yeah. You got to pay, to the extent your income exceeds your expenses, you got to pay income tax, not just in Portugal, but also in the US. So you got to pay income tax twice, a management company, property taxes. So I'm I'm doing the research to figure out kind of where the break even point is 
on the because I don't want to I don't want to invest in a property to lose money on it. I want to I want to at least have a property that I can break even on, and then um, and if we can make a little scratch out of it, even better. So, well, one of these days when we decide to branch out and do another podcast, we can do uh, real estate law, international global real estate law. But that's not our show today. So anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed your vacation. It's great to have you back, and uh, we do have a few things. A lot a lot has happened. We're not going to try to cover everything, but there's been two or no, three. No man, stories. it is it is hot strike summer in the U.S. Jesus. No doubt, like I everybody's know. on strike. Why are we still yeah. working? I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't. I, got, I haven't found a reason to strike yet. I don't know. Um, no, but yeah. So like a ton of stuff has gone on. I, I I picked out three things for us to talk about today. I guess or we mutually picked them out. So let's go to the beer connection. Sticking with you know linking John's interests and hobbies, uh, craft beer and not so much a craft beer place, but Anchor Anchor Brewing Company which is one of America's oldest brewers. Oldest, um, oldest craft brewer in America. Uh, like a hundred and some years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anchor, I, Anchor holds a special place in my heart. It was my gateway into craft beer. I discovered, really? I, I discovered Anchor Steam. Uh, I mean, I was a beer snob all the way back in college when people were drinking, yeah. you know, Natty Light. Um, I was drinking Guinness and Anchor Steam. Um, but uh, uh Anchor Steam was like my gateway into craft beer. It, it's, I love um, Anchor Steam. It's, it's a it's great beer. They're, they're hard Christmas, to find. Yeah. Well, yeah. And their 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 Christmas their, their Christmas uh, their Christmas release is great too. Um, and it's a really sad story. They sold out to Sapporo, a Japanese company. Several, I think, in twenty seventeen, they sold out to they they sold the brewery to Sapporo. Um, they it's were kind also of a trend, right? Uh, the craft. Some of the larger craft breweries were kind of being bought up by more mainstream brewers that kind of to get the cachet, but also to help them spread their distribution was the theory, right? They would grow. Well, yeah, we saw that. We saw that here in Cleveland, um, Platform Brewing, which was one of Cleveland's flagship craft breweries, um, sold to InBev, uh, Anheuser-Busch, um, and then uh, was shut down. <laughs> sure. yeah. So, and that that's the trend too, right? So. To bring it full circle, Sapporo made the decision to close Anchor Steam or to close Anchor Brewing, um, and uh, it is just uh, story hit me because of how uh, the special place you know their beer is how special their beer is to me and with my history with beer. But um, I the so Sapporo is a Japanese company. The Japanese have a unique relationship and i'm being kind a unique relationship with labor unions and organized labor and um anchor is one of the few craft or was one of the few craft breweries um that's organized uh in the u.s um and no one has come out and said we're closing because we don't want to deal with the union but it sure seems like they closed because they didn't want because they didn't want to deal with the union yeah, so and I have to admit that the that the history of the the whole anchor I don't even know what union it represents the the brewers there, um, so we're we're kind of talking from a very high level, but uh, this goes back to like 2019. So you said that Sapporo acquired them in 2017, and I remember that there was a you know kind of a classic organizing campaign, series of charges and concerns raised by the the brewery workers about the way Sapporo was managing the company, the way they were treating the workers, et cetera, led to a, a, a petition for election, which the which the 
the, the employees voted to be represented by the union and they got a contract. So they, they actually were successful in not only uh, pulling off the campaign, but they actually were able to get a union collective bargaining agreement some, sometime in 2019 or 2020. And then, you know, kind of went quiet until recently when, I mean, I'm sure there was stuff going on, that, but it wasn't a story that you would pay attention to from the media perspective. Like, and it, I was really unaware of, uh, you know, a lot of the financial issues that Anchor had, but to, then it just seemed as if out of the blue, there was this announcement that they were closing down the brewery after 120 some years of operation. And, and uh, yeah, I, you know, it was, like you said, it was never directly attributed to the union, but uh your buddy at the, I forget his name, Dave, that does the fingers. Yeah. Dave, Dave Infante. Yeah. He, uh, he, he came out with, uh, with a, a, a newsletter post or an article or something. I kind of outlined some of the, you know, behind the scenes that workers said problems continued. The the point I wanted to make, I guess, you know, like trying to delve into history that I don't understand is, um, you know, it's not futile to have a union. Clearly, they were able to get a union, get a union contract. However, part of the concern I think they had back in the day was the way the company was being managed, the way their products were being sold, et cetera. Um, unionizing in this case ultimately um, didn't do anything to help those workers preserve their jobs, change the culture, or or avoid a layoff, which is really a really unfortunate outcome. None of it. And it yeah. was, I think, and, you know, I, I think part of the story here is that when my understanding is when Sapporo came in in 2017, there was a lot of operational changes they tried to implement within the brewery to to make the brewery more, make the operations more Japanese. So they tried to automate a lot of things. Um, uh, they tried to, I think, brew uh, uh, some Japanese beers within the brewery and, and, uh, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but, uh, you know, brewing, you know, rice beers is a lot different than brewing um, other styles of beers. And so there was operationally some difficulties that they ran into as well with trying to use the existing anchor production facilities to to make uh, a, a particular style of beer that, that it wasn't suited to. Um, yeah. And then the union came in um, and then and so you wonder how much headbutting there was with all the operational challenges they were having with the acquisition and then the union comes in and it just seems like after trying to make it work for a couple of years, it finally just all, it finally just all came to a head and they, and they made the decision that, well, this is, this isn't going to work. So we're just going to cut our losses and shut it down. Yeah. And, and of course we didn't even mention that a lot of this was happening as COVID was coming on the scene. And so they, you know, I think all, I think brewers in general have seen a little bit of a dip. I mean, there was, you know, there was shifts in taste and people couldn't go to, to bars. And so beer and in general has seen some headwinds you know so the anchor just wasn't anchor just wasn't set up for success it just seemed like their their products were you know not widely available the management co- or the company that bought them and you know tried to manage it, it was it was a com- you know conflagration of or whatever word i'm looking for i don't know it, uh, uh, you know combination of things that drove them out of the market but in, in this case you know since our show is about labor relations this was a case where quite often, you know, a union will come in or employees will seek a union to try to gain protection and security. And, you know, unfortunate because no one, I, don't, I never want to celebrate anyone losing a job. No, you don't want to celebrate people not having jobs. That's not, that's not but the it, goal here. But the end, the end game that they, they hoped for 
you know, it clearly was it clearly wasn't set up to be successful here in this along and do that due, due to a lot of other factors in addition to you know the issues that kind of a, a a situation where you're in conflict over you know with the labor union just adds to the problems you already described the operational and, and other marketing and etc right so it's right. just kind of a shift right. that was slowly right. thinking I think. you know and, and as we as we talked about on a prior episode like if uh if uh if an employer wants to make the decision to shut down an entire operation that's within their it's within the employer's discretion yeah. to do so um and it's not there's nothing illegal about the the parent company here Sapporo saying uh we're we're going to close Anchor Brewing down that's no, there's nothing illegal about that decision even if the motivation is we want to bust the union in the process there's there's nothing illegal about that decision um uh, to close down the entire operation. So, uh, it, what are the you know it's it 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 just it it puts the employees in a really unfortunate situation. Yeah, and I mean, and and there's some legal obligations that are created, you know, like there's effects bargaining, other things, right, and all that kind of stuff. But but yeah, but it, I mean, but frankly, the what they did to your point, what very very legal, very within their the boundaries and parameters of of their rights as owners and. Um, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, you know, I don't want it to be like a lesson learned, I guess, but it's just, it, it is just part of, part of the life. And, and quite often, I think unions sell their merits, you know, that they can help employees avoid these kinds of situations. And in 35 years of practicing in HR and many, many people laid off and many, many closures and shutdowns, I've never seen it where it's a single time where the union has had the ability to, to prevent it. The, the best they can do sometimes is if their collective bargaining agreement has like a uh, transfer to work clause, you know, makes it a little bit, you know, a little reassignment of bargaining work, that kind of thing. They might be able to hang on to work longer, but if the company's going to go down, it's going to go down and there's not really anything the union can do about it. So. Yeah, and j just to take your thought, saying you know your 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 point that you know employees often see unions as a panacea, um, we're seeing that now at a different level, but we're seeing that now with the Starbucks uh, organizing as well. That you know, however, three hundred stores, whatever it was, organized, and what the employees there are now learning is like the organizing is the easy part, and now we have to bargain a first contract, and God, that's really hard, right. and. Yeah. And so all of the gains that these employees hope to make through organizing and getting to the bargaining table, they're now learning, well, we might not be able to get anything. And we're starting to see, I think um, the uh, Mall, Mall of America, Starbucks, the the employees just filed a decert petition. They mm -hmm. just crossed their year um, and filed their decert petition. Um, they're, they're learning that uh, the unions, you know, may not be all they're cracked up to be, especially when you have an employer that wants to dig its heels in and just not give on the bargaining side. So yeah, I th I thought we might get through a whole show without talking about Starbucks. It's impossible. I know. So I'm going to put a I'm going to put another <laughs> hash mark on my invisible wall, uh, twelve in a row. Uh, no, joking. So so yeah. So that goes back to my original point, which is you know their unions can help with a lot of things, but they can't really help with shutdowns. However, we got another topic which is really timely and literally affects anybody who watches a TV or listens to a podcast. Uh, we've got massive, uh, very specialized area, but the Hollywood strike with the Writers Guild of America and SAG Actress, something like 170,000 people on strike in Hollywood and across the rest of the United States in the, in the entertainment industry, literally shutting down production of 
TV shows and movies for so we're going to have a you know <laughs> we're going to be re, we're going to be watching reruns for a while I'm afraid and obviously uh, technology is a the the main driver here there are other things but streaming digital streaming and AI are kind of the the the, the yeah. twin eight hundred pound gorilla yeah they're the two issues they're, they're the two room. issues that are that, that that are driving this work stoppage and driving why the parties have reached impasse and can't get can't get to a contract. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 her, I can't repeat, I can't quote her and I certainly can't do her voice, but Fran Drescher, who's that? <laughs> no, the, come on, formerly, do the voice. Formerly the nanny. Um, no, I really can't do the voice. Fran Drescher, who is famous for being in a series that's been out, off TV for probably 20 years, the nanny. And I, I saw somewhere that said she's worth around $25 million. So she's a, she's a, you know, not, not a super famous actress, but very successful for what she did, um, talked about streaming, digital, and AI as, as you know, that the entire model has changed. And that, you know, uh, the, you, the fact that you mentioned how much she's worth, so she's worth $25 million. She did one sitcom, it ran for six seasons, and then it ran in syndication forever. And she right. made her millions off of the residuals from syndication from her show. Right. And which is exactly the point that the striking writers and actors are making here is that the way the contracts are structured now those residual payments don't impact streaming at all or much at all right and so it used to be um you know every time seinfeld is run on tbs everyone involved gets gets a check in the mail right and it might be a uh you know, it might be, a, a, you know, from Jerry Seinfeld with millions and hundreds of millions, whatever, but down to, you know, the extra that walked on the show um, or had a small, you know, had a line gets obviously a much smaller check, but that every time that show is aired somewhere, that residual is triggered. And streaming, what the actors and writers are saying is that streaming services should work the same way, that Every time someone streams something on Netflix or Amazon or Apple or wherever, we should get a residual the same way as if it aired on your local UHF, to the extent people still know what UHF is, your local UHF station or, <laughs> uh, yeah, or um, <laughs> you know, or on TBS or TNT or USA or whatever. Um, I, I saw a there was a, a TikTok that um, just went viral of one of the actors from Orange is the New Black. And it was a video of her sharing her residual check, which was for like, this is one of the most popular streaming shows of all time. It's been streamed, you know, it's uh, it's probably in the top 10 of all shows ever streamed, Orange is the New Black on Netflix. And her residual check was like $40. Right. It was like 27 yeah. cents an episode or something. Yeah. Like it was some, yeah, some ridiculous amount well, that it, she it, got. Yeah. And we're not going to solve Hollywood's problem. They have to solve that on their own for sure. Um, but I, I, since I, since you went to Portugal and had a good time, um, most mostly the way I've enjoyed myself in the hundred degree heat here in Oklahoma is to go to the air conditioned movie theater. So I saw Indiana Jones, which featured an eighty ish year old uh, Harrison Ford, de aged by CGI, back to you know the Indiana Jones of the nineteen eighties. He's a pretty agile guy jumping around. Has a, a pretty mm. good looking, uh, you know, not leathery face like he wears in real life. And that was about a third of the movie, you know, young and not, not kid, but, you know, young viral Indiana Jones in his prime running across, you know, trains and stuff. Same thing in uh, just this past weekend, uh, a 
he's not as wrinkly, but Tom Cruise, a, a de-aged Tom Cruise flashing back to like 30 years prior, you know, as Eaton or whatever his name is in Mission Impossible. And, you know, they're just taking these guys and making them look fantastic. I don't know what it costs, but it, it seems to work. Uh, and there is supposedly, and I haven't seen this like verified or fact-checked, but there is supposedly a, a proposal on the table where they want to take like actors, especially non-box office, you know, drivers, the the general workaday actor, and they want to pay them like a one-time fee and have them basically hand off their appearance rights in perpetuity. Yeah. You know, so that they and, can and what use the, them. And, and right. And what the student and, and when and when the and when the SAG after complains and says uh this, you know, we want we want to protect the likeness of all of our members and they should be paid for their likeness. And if you're going to use it in the future, um, and the studios say, well, you know, I, you can read the contract that way, but trust us, that's not what we mean. I, I don't know, man, if that's, if that's not what you mean, they may be put in writing what you mean. So everyone knows what the parameters are of how this is going to work. But I, I, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, my my philosophical sympathies typically fall on the management side, um, but it's hard not to sympathize with the writers and the actors here. And I'm not talking about the Harrison Fords and Tom Cruises who are making twenty million dollars a movie. You're talking about the the uh, you know the actor that's making you know ten or you know making pennies on the dollar for you know to do a bit part in some movie to make sure that they're protected moving forward, um, or the writer who wants to make sure that. Um, their the studio isn't going to replace them with a with a generative AI bot to pump out yeah. scripts, right? Yeah. So it's it's hard it's hard not to sympathize with them under the circumstances. And they don't and writer, I mean, I'm sure some writers, I'm sure there are like celebrity writers, right? That are you know big sitcom writers or Saturday Night Live or whatever. The famous writers, you know, probably get paid pretty well. But there are a lot of backroom writers who are just cranking out, you know, rewrite this scene for me, right? That. They're, yeah, they're I mean, we're making... we're seeing we're we're seeing the the all the 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 media that's being generated on the picket lines. We're seeing the, you know, the Jason Sudeikis's and the, uh, you know, all these famous Hollywood actors, you know, on the picket lines walking. They were walking the picket line in support of the writers. They're walking the picket line now in support of their own union, but they're not striking for themselves. They have they have the leverage to strike their own deals and and if they want to. Um, they're not striking for themselves. They're striking for the people that aren't them, right? Um, and that that's that's what the, the these strikes aren't about the famous people. These strikes are about the people in the writers' room that are you know that are barely making ends meet. They're talking about the writers that are or the actors that are you know still working um, uh, in Starbucks <laughs> as baristas um, or waiting tables to make ends meet while they're trying to get their break. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's what, that's what these strikes are about. And, and I think, I think there's an important point here to kind of transition to where we usually go, which is how does this relate to like HR practitioners? Um, so like, this isn't a sports strike, right? This isn't the NHL players on strike because there's only so many NHL players that can play and only so many people that can shoot the puck hundred miles an hour, or throw a baseball hundred miles an hour, or hit one. You know, you you don't. You, it's hard to feel sorry for them because it's like millionaires against billionaires. And while this, in at some level, that's true in this Hollywood strike, it, it's different. And and for two reasons: one is there's a lot of other uh, smaller players affected. To your point, and then the other one is this is sort of a, a microcosm or a lens into issues that thread are gonna. I mean, AI, not streaming and not de aging our images and that kind of stuff. 
but how technology is at a, I think at a threshold point here right now with AI, where this very same concern for different reasons and in different ways is, is potentially going to impact all sorts of other workers in all sorts of other industries and HR practitioners and, and, and labor lawyers and labor union leaders for that matter are all going to be wrestling with this. And Shoot, kind of I, I mean, I, I worry about it. I'm a, I'm a highly educated, highly trained professional, and I worry about how AI is going to impact my job, right? How mm -hmm. if, um, you know, I'm in the middle of working on a, writing, a drafting an employee handbook for a client, right? Uh, when are we going to get to the point where, and they can, you can do it now where you go to chat GPT and type in write an employee handbook for me. And mm -hmm. it's, and it's rough and it's not great. And you're still going to need eyeballs on it to edit it and spruce it up and make sure it's legally, legally compliant and all that. But AI right now is really in its very early, very uh, nascent, like pre, I, I look at the generative AI that's out there now is like pre alpha release AI. And it's going to, and it's learning and it's learning in a fast clip and it's going to get better and better and better. And if you're, if you work for a living and you're not worried about the impact that AI is going to have on you and your job in the future, you're not paying attention because uh, the, uh, uh, to take it back to Hollywood, um, the Terminator was a movie, but it doesn't look all that far-fetched right now. Yeah. And as an HR practitioner, if you're not thinking about how your people are thinking about this from a from a work applicant, like, is this tool going to take my job or is this tool going to obsolete me out of a job, you know, a job I love or, you know, there's a, there's a million iterations of this. Um, but it's, 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 I mean, it threads through our, like, if you, you go to the movies. I mean, you mentioned Skynet, Terminator, I mean, current Mission Impossible movie all the way back into the War of the Worlds. I mean, technology, I, granted that was invasion from outer space, different kind of technology, but laser beams and flying saucers. Technology and the threat of technology is a basic human fear. And we always worry that it's going to either take over and control our lives or replace us. And it, the fight has been going on since typesetters who used to print, literally set letters in, in rows to print a newspaper were replaced by automatic typesetters back in the whatever 1800s or 1900s. I mean, it, and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an old ages old battle. It's just got new fronts with more digital aspects to it, but it's something that you need to be thinking about. I don't know, legal aspects, obviously the labor union stuff is there and it might force people to drive more unions, but there's all sorts, there's all sorts of other things too, John. I don't know if you want to comment like generally from a labor aspect or not from a labor law aspect or not. On, on the AI front, I, I mean, I, you, you you have to worry about when you deal with AI, you know, when you talk about like AI and hiring, for example, you got to worry about, um, you know, are there inherent biases baked into the algorithms, baked into the AI that's going to create biases on the on the back end? So, you know, that's certainly a concern of mine, kind of garbage in, garbage out on the AI side. What's the data set it's relying on? Is the data set biased? And if the data set is biased and you're relying on that data set or that the AI's interpretation of that data set to make a decision for you, the decision is going to be biased too. Um, so I, that's certainly, um, that is certainly a concern I have, which is the use of AI in kind of in the workplace in general. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a specific story that, that one of our mutual friends, Suzanne Lucas wrote about the other day. And I think she may have quoted you in the article. I don't, I'm not hundred percent sure on that. And this, this is the, uh, 
This is the horrible tree trimming incident that took place. Yeah, she the did, other day, she, she did. She she did quote me. What a fascinating like retaliation comes in all shapes and sizes. You don't think of our you know uh, uh, arborism as being retaliatory, but it got it looks like it might be here. I don't know. I mean, it's um the uh, uh, NBC you know there's picket lines out in front of NBC Universal. The pickets are limited to one side of the street because there's construction on the other side. And the side of the street where they the only side of the street by the studio where they can pick it um, is um, shaded by a line of trees. It's we're in the middle of this oppressive heat wave. It's hot in Southern California. Um, and the the, the em, employees walk at the picket walking the picket line uh, were enjoying the benefit of the shade from those trees. And then um, NBC Universal went and trimmed all the trees to knock back all the shade. And now the picketers are. Uh, have no shade and are just picketing out in the in the oppressive Southern California summer heat. Um, and uh, they've now filed at SAG-AFTRA um, uh, uh, and the Writers Guild of America have filed an unfair labor practice charge with the NLRB claiming that the trimming of the trees was a, is an 81 violation violating the employee Section 7 rights to picket. NBC Universal says we trim these trees every year. There's there's nothing. It's just scheduled for trimming. They said the county usually does it. The county is in L.A. County has now come back and say we haven't trimmed these trees in like three or four years. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's a very interesting story. And the and I think it's really going to hinge on when was this tree trimming scheduled to be done? When was the contract put in to schedule these trees? What does the past practice of trimming look like? And was that schedule of tree trimming? Is it only these trees with their other trees or was the schedule altered just to impact those just to, to impact those trees and the picketers? It's a it's a fascinating story, but it's sure it's not a great look for NBC Universal to to do something that looks like they're trying to get these 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 picketing um, uh, workers to to wilt in the in the and, summer heat. And, and 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 I'll go on the management side for just a minute. So, number one. I doubt anybody in the NBC Universal HR department had, you know, tree trimming on their bingo card as a as a strategic issue for 2023. Right? <laughs> they may have had a a strike planning uh, action item there, um, and it is it is not beyond the realm of possibility that they may have wanted to clear the trees out to you know for because they were bushy kind of some kind of weird looking palm. I don't know. I don't know what it's called, but they had a lot of lush growth and it wasn't low hanging, but they might have wanted to clear it out for like security reasons, you know, for visibility of cameras and different things that to watch a picket line questionable, whether they actually have the right to do that or not, or if it was indeed a, tr a tree trimming thing, but they may have had some other motives, you know, to, to try to prevent, you know, certain things that could happen on a picket line may or may not be applicable to the, uh, to the uh, to this current situation, but I'm sure no one was prepared to defend a ULP over over tree trimming. So it's nope. definitely At one of the more first, weird events. First, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out on a limb. No pun intended, and say <laughs> uh, the pun is actually very much intended. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is the first tree trimming unfair labor practice charge in the history of the National Labor Relations Board. I bet. I bet not, because there are some tree trimming companies. <laughs> well, let me just say, not not, by tree trimming, not, yeah. not involving an arborist specifically exactly. as a target of the charge. Yeah. So yeah. So and 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 you know, kind of kind of seriously. The I guess the like this. 
you know, I mean, this is just a minor kind of fun, if you will. It's that's I'm sure it's not fun for the sweaty hot picketers, but it's kind of a fun story to talk about of all this. But this is just one example of the many hundreds or whatever potential kind of issues you get into in a strike. So, you know, if you can avoid it, it's uh, always better. But clearly, in Hollywood, they're at a at a kind of an inflection point where they're going to redefine the industry and the way people earn and work in the industry for decades to come because of technology. So they really can't avoid this. Uh, they could have maybe have not trimmed the trees. But do anyway. you do you have concerns as a labor relations practitioner that so we had this wave of organizing, you know, 18, 24 months ago in the retail sector um, coming out of COVID and it seems to have ebbed, right, leveled off and then ebbed mm -hmm. as time went on. Yeah, the Starbucks. Yeah. Right, now we have yeah. all of these very high profile labor strikes. We have right. the Writers Guild, SAG-AFTRA, um, UPS is about to go on strike, we think. Um, uh, uh, United Airbnb. Airlines just avoided a strike with their pilots. Um, American Airlines flight attendants are set to go on strike. There's going to be a lot of very high profile um, high media present strikes. What's your level of concern that all these high pro all these high profile strikes are gonna are gonna trickle down and kind of re-energize the, the the organizing sector? Um, I, well, certainly. I mean, so you know, there's more. To, there's actually more to it than that. So I, I think there's a definite. I don't. I don't know that we'll see a resurgence of organizing on the scale of we saw with the Starbucks wave. I. You know, it, we're still seeing. Uh, I mean, year over year, 2023 to 2022 is is almost as active in terms of, of petitions filed. Like, I don't have numbers at my fingertips, but just, you know, for the first six months of the year, the, the number of petitions filed is not that much. It's lower this year, but only slightly lower than it was in 2022. And in the first six months of 2022, what, that was the main crest of the Starbucks wave. So I think I think organizing to some extent has broadened out. Um, I wish I had thought known we were going to talk about this. I could actually pulled some numbers, but I, I didn't. But I think I think organizing has spread out. It's just not as focused in the you know one industry or one company like it was last year. So there's that. You know, organizing is still happening, and then you see the these strikes, which certainly get media attention. Right, the tree trimming story. You know, we want to talk about them. That you know, UPS could go on strike. Airlines. I saw yesterday we were eating lunch here at the office. Uh, in front of a TV monitor, and my boss is getting ready to head over to uh, Spain, and he was like, "Any flies probably flying American and Air American airline pilots, American airline." You mentioned that American airline flight attendants both talking about going on strike. He's like, "Oh, I'd love to see that." What just as I'm about to embark on a whole month of travel, right? <laughs> and then you've got UAW who just started negotiations in a very, very contentious, uh, potentially very contentious uh, thing that it could go out in September. So there's going to be a lot. And then there's a lot more behind that, just kind of smaller strikes taking place, hospitals, et cetera. So it is, nothing's cooling down and it's definitely going to drive it. I don't know if it'll resurge it because I guess the point I'm trying to make is I'm not sure that the organizing has gone away or it just has leveled off in one big campaign, but I think it's still out there, you know, otherwise. So, but it, it is definitely churning the interest and attention of the, of workers and it will continue to build. So I don't I don't see labor activity diminishing any time before the end of the year for sure. Whether you talk about organizing strike activities or other other things, we're going to have a busy 2023. Um, once we get the the I just saw an article though that talked about like for employers how you handle strikes and the kind of the antics that you pull all of the tree trimming thing you just talked about can definitely color uh, 
you know, the reaction of the media, right? So like it, it, the, the tree trimming thing makes it real easy to draw the attention of the mainstream media and have them jump on you and make you look like an a-hole employer. Yep. You know, that to your point is retaliating against the workers that are out there in the hot sun, right? And, and, and while you're not, you're never going to be portrayed as a benevolent, um, you know, philanthropist, if you have people out walking the streets on a picket line, you can maybe avoid that Grinch, you know, so there's degrees. Yeah. Right? And I think may, maybe just because of the high profile nature of the people involved, it might be, it's, it's, it's impossible to expect not to have media attention on this, on the, the writers and actors strikes, because yeah, we got, but, we got big, we got famous people on the picket line. And so that's right. just, but and we all want to know what they're doing and who's yeah, right. That's just that's just the paparazzi society we live in. Ron but, Perlman yeah, but, threatened uh, threatened uh, you know some of the Hollywood producers. You know, beware, MFR. You know, you, you you can lose your house in a lot of ways, right? He's like bringing Sons of Anarchy character to life in his role <laughs> as a union supporter. Um, but you, but 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 to your point, I think you you don't you don't want to in your everyday. Every in your everyday strike, right? The listeners can't see my air quotes, but in your Easy everyday strikes. strike, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you 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 certainly don't want to do things that you you don't want news cameras on the picket line if you can avoid it. And so, not doing things to draw news cameras to your picket line is is probably going to be in your best interest. Yeah, definitely. And then um, I think that you know, again, go back, you know, going back to basics. If you're facing this kind of stuff, um, you know, you want to have a strike plan. You want to have, you know, replacement workers lined up. All these tough things that you got to figure out. But you know, they're they're basic blocking and tackling and dealing with a situation like this. And, and a big part of that is PR communication. So make yep. sure you have somebody on your team thinking about these kind of things, right? Because it it is it it's a big part. It, it, and if it never comes up then great but if it does you know you got to be ready to go then not not yeah and if you're just it. you know and if you're a little local you know manufacturing facility that doesn't have a full-time pr person on staff the way like nbc universal does or netflix does um go hire someone there are lots of pr people out there that are well versed in dealing with these issues and you 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 need to have your pr and media relations um uh, uh plan in place uh well in advance of the employees walking off the job yeah and and unions i mean this has never been not true but unions are as aware now as any time ever in the in the 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 notion of media relations and appearance so for example so ups you know they they allegedly walked out uh the the, the teamsters and ups you know walked out at the early 4 a.m. strike or uh, negotiation session and supposedly UPS walked out. I don't know what happened, but but there was a definitely staged picture of the whole bargaining committee, including Sean O'Brien, whose uh, whose uh, Twitter handle is Teamster Sob, uh, which is 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 pretty pretty media savvy in and of itself, right? It portrays an image of him as a, a boisterous and and you know kind of a militant leader, which is the role he relishes, and he's playing it to the hilt in there. And then uh, Sean Fain. In the UAW, uh, you know, for years, the big three and or the Detroit three, I guess they call them now. I grew up there and it was the big three or the big four. Um, the, the UAW and the big three or big four used to always have like a traditional handshake at the opening of negotiations. Well, the UAW declined the handshake today. And there's, you know, they, they did some other stuff, raised fists and things, you know, just making moments that they want to show that we're a different union. Today yeah, you know, to, kind of to, to, to the extent that that issues are tried in the court of public opinion and 
these labor strikes are being tried in the court of public opinion. Public sentiment's always going to side. The majority of it's always going to side with the with the employees over the over management, and the unions know that. And and uh, social media gives them an easy platform to get out their message, and they've and they're just they've just got really good at using those tools. Much yeah. much better much much better than management. Well, UPS has been holding, or UPS Teamsters have been holding what they call practice pickets for weeks across the country, all across the country, where UPS workers are, are are going on their own time to participate in practice pickets, which are essentially picket line demonstrations out in front of some UPS facility, you know, that are unofficial strike kind of thing, which they'll be doing for real if they actually do go on strike. But it's certainly a media play. You know, it shows UPS, hey, we're united, we've got our people, you know, and it's all coordinated and and, and lined up by the unions and the locals. And, you know, it's it's part of the overall negotiation strategy to put pressure on UPS. Um, we're gonna miss the other topic because we're gonna run out of time. There is one thing I do, one other element I wanna bring up, which is pretty important. Um, behind all this, you know, shenanigans or whatever you wanna call it of, you know, tree trimming and protest practice pickets, there has been another trend that I think is important to call out. Uh, and it's not, it's not fulfilled yet, but I mean, so far some of the TA, the the, the initial the, uh, tentative agreements that UPS has gotten have seen some major wins for what or what have, what appear to be from the media reports anyway major wins for the for the Teamsters against UPS and I've seen you know, like uh, one of the airline companies just gave a forty percent waging I mean so yeah that was I think are, that's yeah that that's the issue with the flight attendants with Americans so they the their pilots threatened to strike in the spring they got a forty two I think forty two percent wage increase and now the flight attendants say yeah we we want our forty two percent too so yeah and 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 UPS has apparently agreed to roll back two tier wage system that they've had in place for a long time which is something that unions even though they'll agree to it when it, when they're driven to it by necessity, they hate it. It's extremely problematic, and they want to get rid of it. And that's a UAW pending issue as well. And now UPS and the Teamsters seem to be hung up on part time workers and their status, and they want more full time jobs. The unions have a moment here with the empowered workforce and the labor market and stuff where they can get gains that they haven't had a chance to get in years, and seemingly they're accomplishing that. So they're not only getting media attention, but they're generating what appears to be some formidable success during the, some of these large, I mean, it, none of this is signed and done yet, but it looks like they're making progress. And if that's the case, to go back to your original question, that's gonna drive, you know, cause success and wins lead to more in theory, right? So that'll definitely, which will continue to drive the organizing. Absolutely. Um, I don't, I think yeah, we can do this in a short, I wanted to just touch on something that was just I, uh, on Facebook, there was this conversation that came up. This isn't labor relations specifically, but it, it is another topic that a lot of employers seem to have concern about. I, I'm like, really, people can do that. So the topic is moonlighting and holding second jobs. And the, the big employer fear is that remote workers working digitally are setting up these elaborate systems that allow them to work one or two or three full-time jobs simultaneously and, you know, and somehow, you know, be able to make millions, I guess, while, while they're hiding out under the, the guise of, I just work for you, Mr. Boss. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, working second jobs. And it's in many cases where people are working second jobs because their first job doesn't pay them enough to make a, a living wage, right? So there's like dichotomy on both ends, I guess, depending on where you're at. But I, I just kind of wanted to go around the, the loop, John, and talk from a legal aspect about moonlighting policies and policies about, you know, people who work 
second jobs and like what are what are some of your thoughts and what are what are some of your recommendations on that because it seems to be something that is a burning uh burning issue for a lot of employers and and, and hr people as yeah. a result so for for non-exempt hourly workers i could really care less work as many jobs as you want if you got to work you're going to work when you're scheduled if i'm scheduling you 40 hours and you want to work another 20 somewhere else because that's what you need to do to make ends meet. I mean, so be it. I could care less. Um, for your it, it gets more tricky and more nuanced with salaried exempt workers. Cause in theory, I'm paying you a salary, and that salary covers however many hours a week you have to work. So if if you work 40 hours in a week, great. If it takes you 60 to get your job done that week, then your salary covers the 60. If you need to work 100, your salary covers you for 100. And employers get concerned because they feel that attention, we'll, we'll talk about loyalties in a second, but attention gets diverted. Um, from my perspective, if I'm an employer and the work is getting done and there's not a performance issue with the work mm -hmm. getting done, then I don't care how many jobs you work, as long as my task is getting done. And that's whether I'm the primary employer, the secondary employer, the tertiary employer, whatever, as long as you're meeting my expectations, I don't really care how many jobs you work. Um, if I'm paying you your salary at exempt and you're not getting the job done, I mean, that's not a moonlighting issue. That's a performance issue. And yeah. maybe, and maybe the explanation is, well, I'm not, I didn't get this project done this week because my other job had me doing X, Y, or Z. And then, and then the conversation is, well, if the other job is impacting your performance, then um, I can't have you working. I can't have you working this other job. Right. But that's a performance issue. It's not a, it's not necessarily an issue. It's not a moonlighting issue per se where I have issues and where, where I start to have issues with employees who are moonlighting is if the moonlighting the second job divides an employee's loyalties, like they're working for a competitor, or they, right. or, or they have, or uh, it, it calls into question. You know, could a, a leak of confidential information can that do damage here? Because it's going to go to this other employer. I mean, that's really where, when you kind of get down to it, that's where it really has the potential to raise issues, and that's where, when when clients come to me and say we want to draft a moonlighting policy, the you know, we have the conversation of well, what what are you what are you trying what is your concern and what are you trying to protect here? And if it's well, we really don't want employees having divided loyalties or competing or going to work for a competitor or whatever, we can draft confidentiality policies and other things and non-compete agreements uh narrowly tailored to address those issues. But just saying no moonlighting to me where if someone is otherwise getting their job done and now the impact of that policy, if I want to, you know, work 40 hours a week, you know, in the finance office of a company and then go work, you know, 20 hours a week in, you know, my dad's shop, right. Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever. I mean, who cares as long as the job's getting done. Um, and, and I think, um, employers run run the risk of driving good employees away when they start to put unreasonable boundaries on you know someone's ability to earn extra money doing something else i have i guess uh, like an a and b question um and and i know this isn't an absolute 
So, you know, address whatever it is. But so, and, and this is for the hourly side. How much latitude does an employer actually have to tell an hourly, an hourly employee, somebody who's not salaried and kind of buying their time, you know, because you get that quid pro quo of sometimes goes back to the salaried associate if they need personal time during a week, usually as well. How much rate does an employee actually have to tell somebody you can't work? Like, like if I work at uh, grocery store A, you can't work at, you know, grocery store B because they're a direct competitor or, or, and, or, and then that's A and then B is how much right do they tell them you can't moonlight at all? I mean, you can, they can do it, I guess, but like, is it legally bound if that's their yeah. policy? Yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah. I mean, there's nothing illegal about telling someone, I think on the, you can't work for a competitor at the same time. I would say that the, the FTC or the NLRB or the, the other agencies that are looking at, the legality of non-compete agreements um, might have something to say about that, but they're really focused. But I think they're, they're really focused on if you work for employer A and then leave employer A, you can't then go work for employer B, right? You're mm. limiting mobility. This isn't really that issue. This is you can't work for two companies simultaneously. Right. And yeah, that that I that legally, I, I think, is within an employer's discretion. The question is to what end and are you setting boundaries that are going to drive away good employees yeah. because they feel you know you're paying me ten dollars an hour and you're gonna and i'm working 40 hours a week so i'm making four hundred dollars a week for you and you're telling me you know and my you know when i get to need to pay rent and groceries and you know put gas in my car or whatever and you're telling me i can't go pick up a second job is going to pay me another ten dollars an hour for the other you know, for 20 more hours a week, so I can make a few, you know, a few extra dollars, that's, it's it's going to create resentment and probably drive away good employees. Yeah, that's, I, I agree. I just wanted to see, you know, because like one of the questions that comes up in our Facebook forum is, can I, can I, my boss just asked me to implement this policy. Is this legal? You know, I mean, it's legal. We, we might, we might say it's not, it's not smart, but it is legal. Right, right. So, well, cool. So that is uh, that is a show, I guess. Um, great to be back having some conversation about HR and labor uh, relations issues with you. They're, they they never seem to go away, and they only continue to get more uh, surreal and absurd as we move forward into the age of uh, AI technology. So <laughs> I'm Wonderful. sure we'll have plenty to talk about for a while here yet. So. Wonderful. Anyway, um, I'll let you get back to work. I got a, another meeting to go to. So thanks for, for doing this today. And we'll do another show in a couple of weeks. We'll and... do it soon. Always good to see you and talk to you. Yeah, likewise, John. Take care. Have a great yeah, day. Yeah, you too.